Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 216, the Cloud Pod is feeling elevated enough to record the podcast. <laughs> a little bit of teamwork on that title. Uh, well, a, a team of two today, apparently. Yeah. Just me and Matt. Um, despite our best attempts to find other people to join us, uh, not sure if we got BO or something today, but whatever. Nobody wanted to, to hang out. We got so much BO that it kills everyone from both sides of the country. <laughs> well, Justin is back from his vacation and uh, decided to bail. Ryan's on death's door. And so it's uh, just the two of us today. So let's get started with AWS, as there's no general news. Amazon EC2 Instance Connect supports SSH and RDP connectivity without public IP addresses. You can now connect via SSH and RDP to EC2 instances without using the public IP using EIC endpoints. Customers now have the ability to remotely connect their instances in private subnets, eliminating the need to use uh, IPv4 addresses and bastion hosts. EIC endpoint combines AWS IAM-based access controls to restrict access to trusted principles with network-based controls, such as security rules. It provides an audit of all connections via CloudTrail, helping customers improve their security posture. It's nice to see Amazon still coming up with more solutions, you know, to not have things be public and really try to get their customers to not, you know, use all the older school technologies to make things public, to use Bastion hosts, you know, now they have this, you know, which I guess has to have a EIC endpoint. Um, you know, they have the SSM, which does require an agent where this doesn't. So, you know, everything kind of has their pros and cons, but it's nice to see that they're still just per- trying to provide customers solution to make their security posture always be better. Yeah, many times I've used like a, a load balancer or something to fall connections from a public IP to, to a private subnet, all kinds of hacky ways of getting around this, which of course is completely unauditable and people drop their private keys on the, on, well, either on, on bastions or, yeah, yeah, it's just terrible. And so there's, there's some really nice things about this service. One, it doesn't cost anything. Um, if, if well, you deploy the endpoint, well, well, it doesn't cut, it's not hourly cost or anything. It's, a, it's free to deploy the endpoint. Um, the only, the only cost is if you deploy the endpoint in one, in one AZ and connect to instances in another AZ, you, you pay for the cross AZ traffic, but no additional cost, which is super nice. Yeah. And SSH and RDP aren't going to be your main drivers of cross AZ traffic. Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> Right, moving on. RDS Custom for SQL Server lets you bring your own media. RDS Custom for SQL Server now allows customers to be use their own SQL Server installation media when creating RDS instances. By using Bring Your Own Media, customers can leverage their existing SQL Server licenses with Amazon RDS for SQL Server. Um, Amazon RDS Custom is a managed database service that allows customization of the underlying OS and database environment. Previously, when using RDS Custom for SQL Server, customers used the license included. In, in the hourly pay model with bring your own media customers provide their own licensing, which allows customers who've already purchased licenses. Uh, so basically uh, not pay dole, not pay twice for that. So I guess in, in a way, I mean, really what, really what's happening at this point is you're building an image. The, the blog post goes into how you use the service, but you, you build an image, copy your own installation media on, run sysprep, and then, run, then RDS deploys that image and its management tooling. Yeah, I guess it helps if you want to have like your own security tools on the box or, you know, anything else on the box, you know, um, on the underlying RDS box. 
I'd be more afraid if I was Amazon that people are going to install, you know, insert security tool here and start blocking stuff and blame Amazon for it later on. But I assume they've kind of figured out all the edge cases for this. I mean, I, I think the, the advantage for me is that I, I've often heard, well, we can't use RDS because it doesn't support this, doesn't support this, doesn't support this. Whereas now you can deploy your own instances with, with uh, your own controls and just use RDS as a, as a management layer. Kind of cool. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting, you know, they're just trying to open up and un- take down anything that people are going to say, no, I can't use it, use these services for this, you know, and get you into the cloud and leveraging it, you know, in ways that is beneficial. The only, the other interesting thing is I'm wondering if this also has to do with maybe like, you know, government contracts, you know, where they have to control every piece of the, of the software uh, lifecycle you know, know that they got the image directly from Microsoft and everything else versus having Amazon be in the middle of the S-bomb setup. So that's the only other thing I could think of, of why they were doing this, maybe for, you know, secret cloud and uh, top secret cloud or, you know, potentially other clouds for other countries. But it's, it's an interesting feature. I just don't know. I have a real use case for this in life. Yeah, I'd like to think that perhaps if you're a huge SQL Server license user that you get bulk discounts on licensing and you can extend those discounts now to instances managed by RDS too. I thought you could always do bring your own, like there was an option in SQL, I thought, to say I own my own license. Or am I now confusing Azure and AWS because I use them both now? For RDS, I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. I know in Azure SQL, you have an option to say license included or software yeah. assurance license. Nice. Yeah. All right. Um, AWS now provides a solution for temporary elevated access management known as Team, which integrates with IM Identity Center, formerly AWS SSO, and allows you to manage temporary elevated access to your multi-account environment. You can download the team solution from AWS samples, deploy it, and customize it to your needs. The team solution has the following features, workflows and approvals. Uh, you can evoke access using IAM Identity Center, view request details and session activity, has the ability to use managed identities and group memberships, and it has a rich authorization model. This whole solution looks great. I'm be more curious in about two years from now when they add it into Amazon SSO or the rebranded um, Amazon IAM Identity Center to actually see it all nicely integrated in and not, you know, hey, there's a web portal over here that you run with um, Amplify and there's probably step functions and CloudWatch. You know, it's a really good solution for build your own. And if you have a public cloud team that, you know, can help manage this, great. Um, But if you're trying to, you know, do this for, a one or two AWS account, probably not worth the overhead and complexity of it. But it's nice to see that they're, again, providing solutions for people and making this be things because this is something that, you know, I've wanted for years. Hey, I need admin rights for, you know, a couple hours versus, oh, there's two groups. I have to make sure I select the right group at the right time in order to get into things. Yeah, it's nice. I guess you could integrate it with things like change handlers so you can only get admin access during pre-approved changes or to pre-approved instances. And that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm sure this is a problem that a lot of people have. Like, what, what do you do when you don't want admin all the time, but you need you do need admin rights when, when you need it? And I've seen people build all kinds of tooling around this. You know, well, we keep passwords in Vault, but if we get the password out to use temporarily, then we have to 
go back and change the password later. It's it's all uh, it's all a lot of moving parts. And so having an off the shelf solution like this is is pretty neat. I wouldn't quite say off the shelf, but close to off the shelf. <laughs> to me, at this point, off the shelf is just a managed service. You know, this is a, I guess, off the shelf with customization. So near the shelf, maybe on the table next to the shelf. I'm not sure. Bespoke. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, I assume this is some like pro serve setup that they built for a customer and, you know, kind of standardized it, you know, and provided it to people. And it's, very complex and you can read through the documentation and the, the whole page and it's a very long blog post, but it's pretty cool the way they kind of put it all together to make it work. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. It'd be nice to be able to take the work they've done and, and use it for other clouds too, actually. Yeah. Well, Reinforce was also um, in the past couple of weeks. Uh, our recording schedule has been a bit off lately, so we didn't cover it at the time. But if you're using AWS Transfer for, S- for SFTP, and uh, quantum computing is worrying you, then uh, AWS now supports post-quantum keys for AWS transfer. I mean, just steal Justin's comment here because it kind of hits it, the head right on the nail of, if you're using FTP and you're worried about quantum security, I'm confused about what your life choices are with the technology that you're leveraging. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everyone wants FTP to die and SFTP to die and it's been around forever and will be around. It's like, you know, banks still have faxes, you know, to mail stuff and because faxes are secure. Yeah, but, you know, really, you know, you're worried about post-quantum security, something just feels off. Yeah. I mean, this shows like, shows that could have written itself, I guess, you know, living in the past, but worried about the future. <laughs> My uh, my rocks are having problems, you know, flying in space. What could possibly be the problem? <laughs> Amazon S3 dual layer server-side encryption with keys stored in AWS Key Management Service. And for those who need, who need to meet uh, NSA CNSSP 15 for PIPs compliance and data at rest capability, uh, the new S3 dual layer server-side encryption uh, is available for objects when uploaded to an S3 bucket. S3 is the only cloud storage service that allows customers to apply two layers of encryption at the object level and control data keys used for both layers. DSSC KMS makes it easier for highly regulated customers to fulfill rigorous security standards such as the DoD. DSSC KMS applies two layers of encryption to objects in S3, which can help protect sensitive data against the low probability of a vulnerability in a single layer of cryptographic implementation. DSSC KMS is designed to meet National Security Agency CNSSB 15 for FIPS compliance and data at rest capability package, that's DARCP, version 5 guidance for two layers of CNSA encryption. There's a lot of acronyms in this. That's a mouthful. (laughs) I mean, they're the only cloud provider to do this from a quick Google search. You know, I think that this was only released, the standard was released last year. So in the last nine months, so you know, the other cloud providers are coming shortly with this. And I think for the average consumer, you're probably not going to need or want this. I'd be curious of what the overhead is, um, or if it's something that Amazon's just eating the overhead on the back end. Yeah, KMS isn't exactly known for its uh, uh, scalable throughput. So I'd be yeah. slightly concerned about, about that, I guess, but yeah. And it's encryption at rest, you know, I understand it's always important and I always do it, but at times I'm like, cool. Now, if somebody gets 
I assume that S3 can't just be my data is living on one hard drive with a throughput they get. So they would have to steal many hard drives from an Amazon data center, piece them together somehow. Just feels overkill, but DOD standards, NSA standards, you know, they like it for a reason. Yeah, it's interesting that it's, uh, th- that server side will be a solution for people who, who have those kind of concerns. You would think that they'd have uh, their own their HSMs own. To, to generate their own yeah. keys and client-side encryption, but I guess it checks the box and makes for a good press release. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm shocked that the NSA even allows direct access to KMS and they're not always just using a HSM solution in the, in the middle. Okay, uh, there's a new set of APIs for Amazon SQS Deadless Queue Redrive. AWS is launching a new API for SQS. The new APIs layer to manage Deadless Queues, uh, Redrive operations programmatically. You can use the SDK or the CLI to programmatically move messages from the Deadless Queue back to the original queue or to a custom queue destination in an attempt to process them again. This is kind of nice always. I mean, I always feel like I've had a dead letter queue and then I just you know send a notification all I've ever used it for. But if you can actually now move that message to somewhere useful, to either retry or, you know, if you're doing failure-driven development, which I would recommend against, you know, you could in theory just cascade it down, but it's nice that they are actually enabling this with APIs. Yeah, I've definitely had a use case for this before when we used SQS for, you know, hundreds of thousands of log events. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when Elasticsearch was down regularly, uh, things would eventually time out of the queue after three days of trying to rebuild the Elasticsearch cluster. So moving those things was a, a Python script back to the things, and of course they'd end up in the back of the queue again. So <laughs> uh, de- definitely nice. I, I kind of wonder if there's a way to track, like if it was in the, if it was in the dead lesson queue and you moved it back once and it failed again the second time, can you can you flag it somehow and say, let's just not try this again. Let's really put it in the dead le- dead dead lesson queue this time. Yeah, I feel like it, there has to be a oh there is there's a max retry max uh, max receive. I was just quickly diving deeper in, but I was curious to see if there was like a hey this has been moved x number of time metadata associated with it. Um, looks like it might be because I see a approximate no this is the approximate number of messages moved. So yeah, I'm pretty good about stopping infinite loops. Uh, I've caused a few infinite loops on creation of instances and bombarding, you know, list calls in the past life. They don't, they just start denying you stuff. It's fine. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution. Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Foghorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. Our final story for AWS this week, simplify how you manage authorization in your applications with Amazon Verified Permissions, 
now generally available. Uh, there was a reinvent announcement, um, I believe. So it's almost almost coming up to a year, I guess. But our Amazon Verified Permissions is a new service that makes it easy to manage authorization in applications. Um, AVP uses machine learning, of course, to verify that users have the permissions they need to access resources. It can be used with any AWS service that supports IAM policies. AVP is easy to set up and use. In bold, AVP can help you reduce the risk of unauthorized access to resources and can help you improve compliance with security and regulatory requirements. It's available in all regions. It's free. And for more information, see the documentation. Yeah, their example says easy to use, and then it brings up Cognito, and I might have minor nightmares. <laughs> um, it, doesn't, it doesn't say easy to deploy. It says easy to use. <laughs> it's heads. I still wonder, have they fixed the ability? Because at one point, Cognito didn't have the ability to back up users. So if you ever wanted to do multi-region stuff, like you couldn't actually back stuff. You couldn't actually back up your like users and deploy to a DR region. So uh, anyway, that's a complete digression from what we're actually supposed to be talking about. But it, it's great to see that they're you know still helping out, um, and integrations into other identity management systems are always nice. The, Just cognito. Yeah, the the um the, the blog post which we'll link to in the show notes uh, goes into some pretty good details about about how it works and the covers. It reminds me of a feature request I made a long time ago actually, which was to to be able to um use my own custom uh, policies, basically, in IAM to do a very similar thing. Uh, so I guess it's kind of a solution to that, in a way, for your own applications, because you define the, the policies using Cedar, which is open source. Yeah, but it's not available in China. Not in China. Too bad. All right, moving on to GCP. Announcing Dataform NGA, develop version control and deploy SQL pipelines in BigQuery. Google has announced the general availability of Dataform, which lets data teams develop version control and deploy SQL pipelines in BigQuery. Dataform helps data engineers and um, data analytics uh, analysts sorry, of all skill levels build production-grade SQL pipelines in BigQuery while following software engineering's best practices, such as version control with Git, CICD, and code lifecycle management. Dataform offers a, a unified UI and API with which to build version control and operationalize. I think Justin just put these words in just to, just to catch me up. Scalable <laughs> SQL pipelines. <laughs> in the Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> in the single environment, data practitioners can develop new tables faster, ensure data quality, and operation, operationalize their pipelines with minimal effort, making data more accessible across their organization. Uh, Neil Schwab, data engineer manager at Intuit MailChimp, said, before we started using Dataform, we used an in-house system to transform our data, which was struggling to scale to meet our needs. After adopting Dataform, and more recently, Dataform in Google Cloud, we've been able to speed up and scale out our data transformation layer to 300 tables across a large volumes of data. The Google Cloud Dataform integration has also sped up our development workflow by enabling faster testing, clearer logging, and broader accessibility. Hey, Jonathan, help explain to me what they're doing here because all I see is that we're building pipelines to, from SQL to BigQuery and they put a UI around it. I think the big thing is uh, data engineers spend a lot of time in a console clicking through things, clicking through pipelines. A lot of data quality is, is managed by people. A lot of pipelines mm. are built 
by people rather than as code. And so I guess by by forcing it to be defined as code and versioned as code uh, gives you a... So they're trying to make the pipelines be artifacts essentially and actually have them be able to go through a dev QA you know, process before they go up into production. Yeah, and potentially you could you could build a new pipeline, compare the output of that with the output of a previous pipeline. If it looks good, then promote it to the next um, environment. So we're going to have pipelines build pipelines. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, introducing Google Secure AI Framework. Google Secure AI Framework is a set of principles and practices that guide the development and development of secure AI systems. The framework is based on three pillars. Responsible AI development. This pillar includes principles such as transparency, accountability, and fairness. Uh, robust AI systems, which includes principles such as accuracy, reliability, and safety, and secure systems, which includes principles such as confidentiality, integrity, and availability. The framework is designed to help Google build AI systems that are safe, reliable, and trustworthy. It also, it's also intended to help Google comply with applicable laws and regulations. Uh, the key points from the article are that Google's secure AI framework is a set of principles and practices that guide the development and deployment of systems. The article also includes a number of case studies that illustrate how Google has applied the framework to real-world projects. Maybe maybe Bard. <laughs> it's a great segue to the next article, but honestly, I feel like all the cloud providers and all the AI providers are just saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, I really would like to see what are the consequences if they break their own framework. You know, like, what are they going to do? Because, cool, they can say that they're going to be responsible and robust and secure and ensure confidentiality and all these things. But it's very easy to put out a press release saying that. It's very hard to prove that you're doing that. So I'd actually love to see some real meat behind a lot of these articles and saying like, this is the way we're doing this. Kind of like, you know, like a, this is not a great example, but like a sock audit, like how are you actually doing what you're saying? What are your controls in place that you're actually making secure systems and you're making them robust and you're making them be responsible and transparent. Like what are they doing to actually do these things versus just saying, Hey, look, we're doing it. Yeah. It's interesting when they use words like accountability, uh, accountable to who? There are shareholders. And uh, fairness, fair to who? Yeah. Yeah. But it's nice at least that they're, they're trying to put out all these things at the beginning and putting it out there as AI is really starting to take off in the world and saying, no, 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 we're going to try to do it this way to start off and hopefully it works. Hopefully AI doesn't take over the world, but yeah, I'll hopefully be dead by then. We'll find out. <laughs> it's a little strange to me that actually it's not strange to me. These frameworks should have come out years ago during, at the beginning yeah. of the development of these tools and not as a response to public concern. For, for the tools which are already available, like ChatGPT uh, and Bard, obviously the, the two popular ones right now. Yeah. But well, once things get media attention, you know, everyone starts to think about things more versus when it's, you know, behind the scenes and only us tech geeks get to play with them. It's less, you know, prevalent in people's minds. Yeah, but Google has warned its own employees not to use code generated by Bard. It's not surprising that many large firms have similarly voiced concerns about generative AI and code, but um, you know, Google built the tool and, and their advertising part is now capable of producing code, yet they're instructing their own employees to not use that code. 
um, which kind of seems counter to the message, to be honest. Uh, Google told Reuters its internal ban was introduced because Bard can output undesired code suggestions, which could lead to buggy or complex bloated software that will cost developers more time to fix than if they don't use AI to code at all. The article also mentions that Google's DeepMind AI lab does not want the US government to set up an agency to focus on regulating AI, which is probably not going to happen. Uh, I think, re- <laughs> I think regulation of AI is, is um, probably going to be on everyone's minds. Uh, they also argue that, uh, that the role should be split across different departments, and they believe NIST could oversee and guide policies and issues. NIST is a framework, though. It's not a regulating agency. It's not like NIST says you have to do this. The NIST is, you know, isn't it the National Institution of Standards and Technology? Like, it's not a, it's a standards agency. So they're not overseeing it. They're producing the, the guys. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's why they want NIST involved, presumably, so that it's yeah. uh, very unregulated. Okay, so I have a great business idea, guys. We're going to make AI. We're going to tell the world to use it, and we're going to build a secret AI that we use that actually helps us code internally and give everyone else faulty code, and we have the good code. That's what I feel like Google's doing right now. It's a little strange. I mean, I, I, I've i used GPT 3.5 extensively over the past few months in code generation, and it's, it's definitely good at some things and not so good at other things. But I mean, it, it's a good starting point. It, it is. It's very. It's a good discovery tool. It's good for writing self-contained uh, functions that do things. Um, I mean, if you can, if if you're agile, sharp, and you write stories properly, um, then you should be able to write a paragraph into into ChatGPT and have it spit out a function that does what you want. I've used it. Yeah. So to kind of help um, improve the way I write stories for other people on the team. Because if you can explain it and and Chat uh, GPT spits out something that something decent, then at least I know that I've I've explained what I want <laughs> well enough. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, I can see why it, it's it, it could make unmaintainable code. I mean, it doesn't code in the same style necessarily. I think I think yeah, it's like any tool like this. It's a good starting point. Um, you know, definitely going to be buggy when it does get to complex. You know, I've also seen it like add like 20, 30 lines of stuff that just is irrelevant to what I actually needed to do. I also totally understand the, you know, confidentiality, like don't give it confidential information because if these tools are learning off what it's used in the past and what it's feeding, you do have the ability. And that was some of the concern with uh, GitHub's Copilot when it first came out was, if you gave it your stuff, could, in theory, if you start writing in a way, could you get somebody else's IP, you know, because it's basing it on other people's code? I feel like the odds are low, but I kind of get why you don't want to just, you know, give it confidential information to. So I get where they're coming from at some level, but it's just kind of weird and how, how they presented it to the public or to internal employees. Yeah, it'd be nice. It'd be nice if there was an option to, you know, don't, don't, don't sell my data. Don't use my data. Let me use the tool. Let me provide prompts. Let me use the output, but don't use my inputs um, as training material. I think GitHub Codepilot, you can do it at an organization level. Like block it from sending anything back. Um, I don't know about BARD because we're not a Google shop. Um, so I don't know if like if you enabled it at the organization level for your company, if you could 
kind of set those permissions or if they have those controls yet. Yeah, I, I suspect there's going to be a lot of AI products which uh, which fail. I mean, um, the Android um, messages app now has a, you know a, an AI helper to write messages, and so you you type a message and then press the magic button, and it pads out your message. I'm like, well, why? If I've already if I can get the message across in in five words, why why send a paragraph? <laughs> well, you didn't have to type it, so it's fine. I didn't have to type it. That's true. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, get off of AI and move on to Azure. Announcing Microsoft's AI customer commitments. Oh, anyway, okay, so back on AI. <laughs> Microsoft is also committing to several things, um, committing several things to its customers around AI. They will also be transparent about how AI is used in Microsoft products and services. Uh, they're going to provide customers with control over how their data is used for AI. Uh, they will also build AI systems that are fair, unbiased, and accountable. And they're going to invest in research and development to ensure that the AI is used for good. Repeat everything we just talked about for Google. Yep. They will collaborate with governments, regulators to develop responsible AI policies, and they will educate and empower people to use AI safely and responsibly. These commitments are important because they show that Microsoft is committed to using AI in a way that benefits customers and society as a whole. Hmm. As a whole, that's uh, that's. <laughs> Could have a whole podcast episode. To, to their ship. I mean, at one point, I feel like we're slowly going to change the name of the podcast to the AI pod, or we're just going to have Chat GPT write the podcast and write our commentary for us. Yeah. Well, that's it for news for this week. It's been uh, thank you. It's been a been fantastic recording with you, Matt. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great sitting down and chatting with you, Jonathan. <laughs> feel like we don't get to do this too often. No. That's, uh, let's do it again next week. Yeah, maybe we'll add some friends next time. I hear uh, there's a guy named Justin that's very fun, and Ryan there are fun to chat with. Maybe we should invite them. I thought they have some experience. It's worth giving them a shot, right? Yeah. We'll, we'll let them try once. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> All right. I'll see you next week. Bye, Jonathan. Bye. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.